Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at the missing Brexit catastrophe, the continued ascent of cryptocurrencies, and the dangers of quantitative easing, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to this week's Word on the Street. So we're going to try and find the signal for investors through this continual blizzard of noise and news. This week, it's Will and me. We're going to go through some of the answers to the questions that seem to be arising quite a bit from our clients at the moment. Before we go there, Will, have you had your jab yet? I think you had it. How are you feeling? I had it. Yes, I, uh, so amazing. I had it at Guy's in London Bridge in a marquee that was processing, uh, the guy told me, um, a thousand people a day. So it's wow. a, I have to admit, it's a real, it was a real logistical marvel. It was, it was, it was amazing to, to be a part of, just briefly. Wow. Well, you see that this is telling because I, I had mine uh, probably three weeks ago. So you can you can guess the relative age profiles of you and me. <laughs> they must have made a mistake. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. The wrong but, way but, around. The wrong way around. <laughs> but it was slightly lower scale where, where I went, but um, good to get it done. Yes, definitely. So on to business. Obviously, you've had you've had your immunization. So of tens of millions of people, which is great. And it's starting to feel like the economy is coming back to life a bit. Spring is springing. I guess, you know, I know you're based in London. What are you seeing for those of us that aren't in, you know, in our capital city? What, what can you see? Is, is, are things opening up? Are we seeing businesses come back to life? I think that's right, Nikki. It does feel a bit more lively. I mean, uh, you know, looking at the data, just, you know, to start with, you know, the first quarter is likely to have seen a bit of a dip in activity for the UK economy. But like you say, you know, you are, you know, you're right that this quarter, we seem to be seeing quite rapid growth as consumers and, uh, you know, and other economic actors make some meaningful strides, meaningful and very welcome strides back to some form of of normality. There are obviously, you know, plenty of unknowns about the, the path ahead always however we are seeing you know very strong growth in activity across the world still uh, and and we may find that the sort of you know this impulse you know this growth impulse uh, in activity kind of you know across the world uh, peaks over the course of the summer but this is still quite likely you know quite quite different from you know the shape of previous recoveries you know particularly the aftermath of the last crisis so, okay, so good to see that kind of rebound uh, or the starts of it. But that leads to the first question that, that we're hearing a lot from clients, which is, okay, aren't central banks going to be forced into raising rates earlier than planned if, if we see a gross spurt? You know, you and I will look at things like the forward curve. So that's, that's how the market projects the path of, of interest rates. And when we look at that, it's suggesting that rates will never even make it back to 1%. That, that seems crazy, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's the times we live in. Uh, and I think, you know, that market implied forecast is obviously reliant on the information currently available. I wouldn't get too wedded to it personally. This may be sacrilege. But, you know, as, as we've discussed before, there are probably, you know, the way I would phrase it, there are probably now more paths ahead that contain at least some problematic inflation than there were previous 
to this crisis. And that's informed by the you know crisis response, among many other things, actually, to be honest. The base case for us is still a continuation of that kind of benign inflationary backdrop over the next, uh, you know, that we've seen over the last few years. You know, however, there are a few plausible arguments doing the rounds that may not be the case. So, you know, we've got to keep an open mind here. And and, and there are some people, you know, we've had the Bank of England you know, press conference uh, today. You know, so I think, you know, that, that most central banks around the world are saying, look, you know, we're, we're happy to see some inflation and we're going to sort of, you know, we're going to look through to the other side because we're not quite sure that, that this is more than just lapping price effects from last year. So, you know, we want to look beyond that. So I mean, most central bankers have said they're going to retain some, you know, be patient. But, you know, I think, yeah, always keep an open mind that that may not be, you know, that that, that may that, that there may be a different path ahead than, than currently expected by the market and indeed central bankers. OK, and then, you know, you're talking there about central bank activity. One of one of the sort of questions that keeps popping up is around quantitative easing or QE. Firstly, well, for those that haven't really heard that before can you just explain what QE is and then have you got any expectations will will it ever stop what what has it actually led to and might we ever go back to to a place where there isn't quantitative easing by by central banks are they the only actors that are keeping the economy the the stock markets afloat well there's lots there's lots in there right? so first of all okay so qe now one very rough and ready way to think of this is when as a central bank you have cut rates to zero or close to it you basically have the accelerator you know to the floor you know we'll go back mm. to that old analogy of uh, you know imagining the economy as a car now qe is a way of trying to influence longer term interest rates giving you scope to push the accelerator a little further so to speak now as usual you know proper economists will be deeply offended you know outraged <laughs> by this oversimplification and if anyone wants you know to get to get in touch on linkedin or you know other means uh, i'll give you the longer more boring but more accurate version now the caution here though i think is really about sort of lazily drawn relationships, caricatures between QE asset classes and things like inequality and so on. You know, they're very uh, popular kind of stories, lines to draw, links to make. But, you know, correlation and causation can be muddy, as we always say. Uh, you know, remember that, uh, you know, the good example of this, I think Luke Pierce used, which I thought was a great idea. There's a, there's a website, I think, called Spurious Correlations. And one of the good ones there was, you know, the almost perfect relationship between bedsheet stranglings and per capita cheese consumption. Um, yes. So just beware of these ones. Now, now, with regards to QE in the economy, you know, also remember not to confuse this with money printing. You know, the modern economy doesn't work like that. As we've said before, you know, actually, we, the consumer, are mostly the kind of dominant money printers in the modern economy. So, you know, when you and I have sufficient confidence to go to the bank and ask to borrow some money and the bank on their part has sufficient confidence to lend that money, uh, some would say foolishness to lend that money to me, money is created. Now, you know, for much of the last economic cycle, that confidence on both sides of the transaction was kind of lacking a little bit, to be honest. And, and there's not really strong evidence yet that that's really changed. So just beware of beware of sort of oversimplify, you know, simplistic relationship drawing. The other thing I think is that confidence is that key aspect there. And I think QE, if we look over the last decade, QE has kind of provided handrails uh, to the economy. So it's been important in that kind of story of kind of reinforcing confidence or trying to sort of restore some confidence in the economy. But, you know, the old adage, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, and I think that probably, you know, applies here. So changing tax somewhat, it comes up a lot 
cryptocurrencies. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we had a great session a few podcasts ago with Luke and Haran talking about cryptos. But I guess, you know, obviously people can go back and look that one up. But but specifically in recent weeks, we've continued to see prices of various cryptocurrencies and, and linked stocks seemingly soar. So it might lead a number of our investors to really question our advice around diversification, what you like to call the get rich slow scheme, it, it sort of can look quite measly in the context of the seemingly persistent gains offered by these cryptos. What, what's, the, what's the way to look at this well? Yes, I had a very annoying friend of mine last night uh, sort of uh, saying that uh, he had no need of the diversified, boring portfolios we've offered because he's got doggy coin, and um, which is there's some quite bizarre stories in there. And particularly, you know, when we talk about those cryptocurrencies, you know, we can split them into two camps. You know, one is the kind of extrinsically valued cryptocurrencies, you know, which are based on um, already existing currency, you know, or, or, or you know, various goods and assets essentially. So they're not. Uh, that's just a sort of evolution in the nature of money. Whereas, you know, there's then there's the entirely different sort of set, which is the intrinsically valued group. So, you know, Bitcoin, all these kind of things. Now, I think, you know, we would reiterate that, you know, the points made by the guys, as you said, you know, that the price surges in these currencies imply investors are embedding kind of mass adoption into their assumptions with regards to these assumptions and therefore the valuation of stuff like that Bitcoin. Now, that, that is highly speculative for a number of reasons. Now, it doesn't mean that it has to be wrong, but I, I think these are the three sort of big points that I would make that really are important for you to sort of think about before you get into this and sort of, you know, uh, allocate too much of your assets towards this uh, these stories. You know, first of all, you know, many of these cryptocurrencies have a supply cap. Now, you know, with regards to Bitcoin, that's part of the story. Now, the problem is that that is also makes it very inflexible, very impractical when it comes to linking or tethering your economy to a finite supply of anything. We've tried this before with gold. The problem is you have a growing economy tethered to a finite supply of anything. You will find deflation, which is something that nobody uh, wants, uh, none of us particularly. Now, the other thing is the second point would be really about, you know, they're highly energy inefficient in terms of sort of transaction process. And that, you know, makes, again, I think that's uh, argues against it, sort of, you know, this mass adoption idea. And the third point is that it's just way too volatile. Most of these are way too volatile for sort of, you know, plausible mediums of exchange. So, you know, the, the overarching point which the guys made, and I think it's a good one, is that, you know, if you if you do want to do it, and we don't want to be total buzzkills about this. You know, I spend my life being a buzzkill, but there is sort of, you know, there is clearly fun to be had for people but as long as you're not sort of expecting too much or allocating too much to it we would say very low single digits as a proportion of your investable assets so i, I think that's you know that, that that's just a sort of rough guiding point for how much you should think about bitcoin as a proportion of the rest of your investments you know maybe maybe i'm just you know too old timid boring and bald to be um, to be into this stuff but i i think i i do worry a little bit i have to say about the path from here and you mentioned there around the energy consumption element here that's surely an important element to be to be thinking of we we get a lot of questions from from our our clients around climate change how the environment surely you know impacts and 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 dominates in some ways our economic outlook 
can you just share a little bit, Will, about how we think about this and, and what are we doing to reflect that in our in our investments? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Nikki, and obviously, you know, really important. You know, I, I think, you know, the first point to make is there are, there are many drivers of change in the global economy, whether, you know, demographics, inequality, technological innovation, and each brings its own set of challenges and opportunities for investors. And, and climate is certainly one of these. And you can sketch out two potential extremes here, you know, the optimistic scenario envisages, you know, a global economy that undergoes fairly drastic structural changes to keep emissions in check from large investments to green technology to sizable changes in the you know, nature and scope of household consumption. Now, at the other end, you know, the pessimistic scenario is one where the global economy eventually suffers immense damage and loss to capital from, you know, unmitigated climate change. Now, we obviously don't know uh, which will be the outcome or, you know, shades in between. I, you know, as you know, I tend to be an optimist based on the, the story of innovation that uh, the past tells, but there can certainly be no guarantees. Uh, and from our perspective, you know, what we can do about it as investors, well, the great thing is here that the toolkit for investors is expanding, proliferating, you know, dramatically over the course of the last few years, and will continue to do so in years ahead, one suspects, you know, and we, among many others, have um, an impact multi-asset class impact fund, which I think is a great move forward in the investment industry. And like I say, we're not the only ones who offer this, but it, it's a great thing because previously you could only really exclude certain types of investments, but now you're getting the chance to do, you know, to, to have positive impact, to turn around and say, well, look, these are my priorities. You know, that's what I want to positively affect. And you can invest and profit from it at the same time, which is a, which is a great a great way. But I think also more broadly, you'll find that understanding and monitoring of ESG, what's called ESG, is generally getting more credible, more embedded in sort of investment thinking. And I think you'll find there'll be more developments uh, over coming years in terms of sort of, you know, the available palette um, of stuff that, with which to sort of, you know, do your bit for the environment. Yeah. And we've had Ian Elwood on the podcast giving a bit of an explainer around you know, the difference between sustainability, impact, ESG, the spectrum. So we'd recommend anyone that wants to, to look that up to do so. And I guess the final group of questions that we've had is really, I mean, it, it's somewhat political, right? But, but you know, clearly there's, there's the breakup of the European Union with the UK or vice versa, however you want to frame it. But, but some are wondering where you know, with Brexit, where is that hit to the economy that that many commentators were were concerned about? Has that just gone away? Or was it somewhat based on hysteria? What are you seeing? What can we see in the data around the impacts of Brexit? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that it's at the moment, there's a lot of noise in the economy. So, you know, with regards to COVID, I mean, the size and, you know, scale, breadth of the hits, you know, uh, the the hits the holes punched by COVID and the sort of you know policy response and the consumer response and so on uh, are so substantial that it, you know it's quite difficult to disentangle from what we're seeing with regards to Brexit. So we'll probably likely need to sort of you know see things settle a little bit before we have a more authoritative view here. You know I think from our perspective, you know back in the distant past of 2015 it feels like another lifetime doesn't it but yeah. you know we wrote we wrote that was when we wrote the first client friendly note about what we thought about brexit and our argument then was that if the uk decided to go with brexit 
um, that it would be a headwind for the UK economy, but likely a digestible one. And, and, and that idea is based on the fact that, you know, we would be introducing a bit of extra friction um, with our largest, largest trading partner by a mile. Um, and that would result in a slightly less inefficient, a slightly less efficient economy over time. To that extent, you know, we weren't necessarily expecting a kind of big shock. And I know some commentators did um, more a kind of steadily growing gap between the UK's pre-Brexit path and, you know, the one that we're, we're, we're now on. You know, however, as always, there is stuff that you can do to narrow that. We should not, in my opinion, get too downbeat on the outlook for the UK economy. We're still, this is still an economy with, you know, world envied institutions, which is really important in the context of attracting investment. We have a very capable, uh, you know, flexible workforce. You've got London as this kind of global city. Um, you know, the future can be bright, but there, you know, that I think that you know, what you do need to see is kind of the right policies in place to get that productivity story story moving again but you know yeah just i think one can get too focused on one aspect of the future at, at the expense of others and i think there's a lot of stuff outside of brexit that is really important to do with the economy and in terms of how we spread innovation and how effectively we do that those are all sorts of things which i think andy held in we talked about the talk before the now ex bank of england chief economist uh, has written a lot about which i think you know he, he's written some really interesting stuff on this side of things and and we've got key votes ahead for for the united kingdom right so you and olivia covered this a couple of months back on the podcast but when it comes to scottish independence what what are the chances and and what do you think it would mean for both scotland and the rest of the uk yeah you know we've all been taught of uh, you know wariness and making strong forecasts on these kind of things you know i mean i think that sort of you know most people in the know seem to say, say that you know, it's going to be a close run thing, as I think Olivia uh, suggested. And in a way, you know, the Scotland, the effect on Scotland in particular, it's a similar story in a way to, to, to Brexit. And that is that Scotland's external markets are really dominated by the rest of the UK. And so greater friction on that trade with the rest of the UK should slow growth until if the plan was to move to the EU and sort of you know, get into the EU over time, then they will totally need to reorient, they will need to reorient their trading book entirely in order to take advantage of that. So, you know, I think the point from us is that, again, it, it's it's not unimaginable that it could be a positive long-term story for Scotland, but there's quite a lot of hard work to go in between. And I don't think we want to sort of, you know, we want to be aware of two outlandish claims for what Scotland leaving the UK could do. And, uh, you know, the UK should be able to absorb that shock a little bit easier because it's the dominant party, party here, much like EU with regards to UK. Okay. And, and finally, we've seen in Europe, uh, let's call it a somewhat patchy vaccination campaign among among other things. And we've got German elections on the road ahead, potentially disruptive French elections. Are we likely to be heading into territory where we could start to see the beginning of the end for the currency union? Mm, I mean, the question has come up again. I mean, it's and there are certainly challenging times ahead, you know, politically, I think, you know, the deal on the recovery fund last year was really seen as a, you know, really is a really important moment, potentially in the, you know, the construction, the plausible construction of a fiscal and political architecture for the for the euro, but it's a sort of half taken step so far, and there's more that needs to be done. And you're right, you know, the politics will remain tricky. You've got sort of, you know, we've had a bit of a respite from the electoral calendar, but there is stuff in the pipeline that could could make things make things more challenging. But I think, you know, the points that we make, a couple of points to make. I mean, one, we've seen a number of times in the last few years, you know, that policymakers, when asked about their, you know, uh, you know, this generation of policymakers, when asked about their commitment 
uh, or challenged about their commitment to the euro. They've answered, you know, quite profoundly. I mean, there's been a number of crises where, you know, you've found leaps forward taken rather than steps back. Uh, and actually you've seen, you know, even the populist or many of the populist options within Europe uh, are no longer offering kind of exiting the EU as an alternative, more reform within the EU. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the major point for us is the same, really. It's just the economic consequences of unraveling the euro in my opinion, would be you know, economically horrifying, you know, for the UK as well as, you know, as Europe and maybe even the rest of the world. Uh, you know, so so I think it's it, it's something that's really worth even if we voted uh, to, you know, exit the euro. We actually we need it. We want it to succeed. Uh, that's in our uh, in our benefits. And I think, you know, for the most part, we still think that the weight of history and the lack of credible alternatives will continue to force this forward. Okay, and and look, thank you for that, Will. But yeah. but I suppose if I was going to play back what I think I heard, a huge amount of uncertainty, potential pitfalls, things that are you know sounding a little bit potentially bubble-like. Wouldn't I be better off waiting on the sidelines and just staying out of the whole investment arena for now? Yeah, it can sometimes feel like that, kind of Nikki. I mean, I, 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 you know, this is always the problem that the the downside risks always feel a bit more tangible than the sort of you know more uh, imaginary upside. What we can say in the past though is that the good days have massively outweighed the bad days in markets, um, and that the more days you are invested tends to be the better outcome, long term outcomes you manage to achieve. The point there, as you know, is that productivity, you know, making more out, you know. Out more outputs for a given set of inputs, you know, that is the story that drives portfolio returns over the long term. The point from us is always we are too hard to bet against uh, over the long term. And we don't know when the next innovative breakthrough will come. Will, will come. We don't know where it'll come. Uh, so that's why we invest in diversified fashion. And, and the added kind of bonus potentially is this idea that we may well be entering into something you know what people are describing as the fourth industrial revolution where you could find turbocharged returns as a result of that that sort of industrial transformation so i think it's you know today is always the best day to get invested i mean that's broadly speaking and the more days you can be invested the more chances you're giving yourself it's a bit of a self-serving response but actually you know, I genuinely believe this is the right way to think about it. Yeah. And we, we take our own medicine, right? So listen, thank you very much, Will. That was really comprehensive. And of course, I'm sure you and I would both welcome any questions that people want to pose via LinkedIn. We're really happy to, to capture those on, on future podcasts. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value. And their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.